This episode of The Labor of Love is brought to you by CardsDirect.com. With over 5,000 cards to choose from, you can design the perfect holiday cards with CardsDirect.com. The holidays are just a few weeks away, so create your cards today and save 25% off at checkout when you visit CardsDirect.com slash RealSimple. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. There are many ways that technology has changed the way we engage and interact. We text our friends and family instead of talking in person. We G-chat our colleagues instead of walking over to their desks. But though these shifts may seem insignificant, their effects on us are substantial, a topic clinical psychologist Sherry Turkle has been studying for the past 30 years. As she writes in her best-selling new book, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age, quote, we become accustomed to seeing life as something we can pause in order to document it. We no longer experience interruptions as disruptions. We experience them as connection. Turkle, who's also a professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at MIT, is joining me today to talk about how technology is replacing genuine human connection at the expense of empathy and what this means for our friendships, marriages, and families. Hi, Sherry. Welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Sherry, you point out that our constant connection to our devices and to technology means that we're all spending less time alone. At this point in time, I feel sometimes that being alone, I almost feel weird and uncomfortable because and I'm, my first response is to just take out my phone when I'm waiting in line somewhere or if I'm bored for a second. Why is it important to be able to sustain time by yourself? And why and how does solitude relate to empathy? Well, that is such a great question because it's, it's sort of counterintuitive that being alone is part of being connected. But let me tell you how it is. That the cultivation of the ability to just be peaceful and quiet by yourself, content in your company without running to a screen, means that when you're with another person, you can hear what they have to say. You can hear them. You're okay in you, so you can turn to someone else and listen to them. And that's how the capacity for solitude and the capacity for relationship go together. And if we, from the, young, from the youngest ages, put screens in front of our children, I mean, there are baby bouncers now yes. that have a slot for an iPad. There are potty trainers that have a <laughs> slot for an iPad. You know, these are the moments when children need to learn to be bored. I mean, one of the things that one of the things comes to mind in your question is that people can't tolerate being alone, and they also can't tolerate the experience of boredom. And these two abilities are are, are really crucial to developing a stable sense of self. Even the brain. The brain needs moments of boredom to lay down the fundamental pieces of identity 
the, the, neuro, the neurophysiological connections for a stable sense of identity. So the best advice to a parent and to an adult is, is to walk towards experiences of boredom, make sure your child knows how to experience a moment of boredom and not just, you know, give him a screen, give him or her a screen to look at. So one of the things that I notice in my own family, the biggest difference that I see in a way between my own childhood and my kids' childhood is car rides. Because when I was little and we used to take car rides, we would sometimes listen to the radio, but often we were either talking to each other or everyone was just staring out the window except for the driver. And it was kind of just this, we were all in an enclosed area and very much, you know, together, but also daydreaming a lot. And what I see with my own kids and other kids who are growing up now is that the car becomes yet another realm or public transportation, you know, for kids who grow up in cities, where the first thing that they want to do when they sit down is take out a device. What is it that they're missing? What is it that we, adults and children, are missing, let's say, in a car ride when we're not staring out the window, but we're staring down at a screen? They're missing conversation and everything that conversation provides. In my view, to reclaim conversation, which is where intimacy is born, which is where empathy is born, we're seeing alarming drops in the amount of empathy as well as we can measure it among our children, among our young, young children, college-age children, a 40% drop in empathy among college-age children in the past 20 years. Which is alarming and, and really, really scary. Alarming. Empathy is born in conversation because it's in conversation that you get the experience of putting yourself in another person's place and having them put their self in your place and repeating this, you know, and just having that happen over and over again and getting it wrong and being corrected and learning that that's not a big deal. And, and this is where all, this capacity is born. And in my mind, the kitchen, the dining room, the car for families are ground zero in the as sacred spaces for conversation in the struggle to reclaim conversation in family life. And you simply say to your family, if you're, if you're the driver, you know, I know this is tough for you, but it's really important in our family that we talk to each other. This is how it's going to be in our family, and I know it's going to be hard in the beginning, but in the car, it's a device-free zone. And, you know, if you introduce this when your child is 15, 16, you're going to get a lot of pushback, but if you introduce this when your child is young, uh, it's just going to be the way your family culture is. Right. And even if your child is older, I've met so many teenagers who... You know, on the surface, they're saying, uh, you know, I want to be on my phone, but actually, they're desperate to talk to their parents. Right. One, one, one child I interviewed, you know, whose father pulls out a phone during, uh, when, when he comes up to visit her at, at camp during a, you know, kind of camper's uh, family weekend, she pulls out his phone to show her something on his phone, and she says, stop Googling, I want to talk to you. Right. So you may be surprised when you introduce the car as a place for conversation, you may be surprised that even if, you're, even if your family pretends to push back, 
they may be relieved. Reading your, the sections of the book where you spoke to young people about how they felt about their parents' use of technology was really enlightening and actually a little bit inspiring because I would have thought that kids wouldn't have cared as much about whether or not their, their parents were on their phones when they were having family time. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned from the young people that you interviewed? Absolutely. Uh, this was the part of my research that I, I have to say surprised me the most because I I think I was expecting a story where young people, you know, love being able to escape to their phones and don't care if their parents are on their phones as well. And that wasn't the case. Young people feel abandoned by their parents Hmm. because their parents are so smitten with their phones. They've grown up with their parents taking phones to the park and, and having, you know, not having their parents watch them on the jungle gym when they're at the highest point on the jungle gym and the highest point on the swing. The parents go to school games, you know, where the, where the kids are doing soccer or the kids are on the, the kids are doing lacrosse and, and, and the kid makes a play and the, and the, and, and the parent misses it. And, and they come in they, they, at school pickup time, they come in and they're expecting to see, a parent look up and greet them, and instead the, the parent is on the phone. Or a parent, what one boy told me that in his whole life he'd never walked to the corner store with his father without the father having doing his mail on his cell phone. What you're describing is, is that the children don't feel seen or known, that their parents are, you know, there's this device that's mitigating the relationship. Yes. These children, it's so well put, these children don't feel seen, they don't feel heard, they don't feel known. Mm-hmm. And they feel, and, and, and what's hopeful about this, I mean, it is a very bad situation, but what's hopeful about this is that if I can reach parents, I mean, I'm, I'm on a tear, I'm on a mission. Right. I mean, if I can reach parents and say, look, you know, you can, it's not impossible to say, we're having dinners together in our family with no phones. I'm putting away my phone. I want you to put away your phone. We're changing how we do things there. I think parents are afraid to do this because they're afraid of having some kind of family rebellion. I think they're going to find that, that there may be some sort of, you know, I don't know, kind of obligatory grumbling because kids feel they need to grumble. But I think that you're going to find that your family is grateful. One thing you brought up in the book that was interesting and I hadn't really thought about in terms of the impact of technology on families was the idea of privacy and that in the pre, you know in the pre-smartphone era and the pre-social media era it was much easier to keep our family matters and conversations private, whereas now adults and kids are documenting everything that happens to them, whether it happens within the walls of their home or outside of their home, and that it it kind of erodes this sense of we are a unit and there are certain things that, not that we keep secret necessarily, but that are just ours. I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more about the about privacy. Oh, yes. This is, this is major. This is absolutely a major thing. I have one story where a teenage girl is outraged that her mother is posting family dinners onto Facebook. And she says, I want to come down to family dinners 
in my sweatpants, mm-hmm. in my, with right. no makeup. I want to just be able to hang out with my parents and my brother and just be me. And if you were posting onto Facebook where all my friends and my kids from my school and my boyfriend and the one who I want to be my boyfriend can see it, I, I'm ruined. Right. So now I have to get I have to put on makeup and 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 wear like nice stressful family dinner. <laughs> She's absolutely devastated, and her mother was like, "Oh, but this is going to be so great! You know, we can share. People are not." People are not thinking about the importance about the relationship of intimacy and privacy. So, and I think we we have so much to think about as a society that's new for us. You know, can there be democracy without privacy? But even before we get to that, you know, can there be intimacy without privacy? And we need to really reconsider this our our new ethos. You know, if I share, therefore I am. Right. I think that's also the documentation of family life is sort of a corollary to what you were saying in terms of kids looking up from their soccer game and seeing their parents, you know, tapping away at their phones and not paying attention. The other part of that is that they are paying attention, but they're they're taking pictures or they're posting yeah. the picture they just took to Instagram. And I'm completely guilty of that. I mean, I love I love photography. I mean, you know, it's a hobby of mine. My my kids get so frustrated though, <laughs> and I understand why because I am constantly trying to capture them at, you know, different moments and you know, I really need to rein myself in because I'm not just documenting it. Even if I'm not sharing the photos, I'm still documenting their childhood rather than living it with them, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you no pity. <laughs> but you know, you're you're what you're doing is is uh, is you know is, is endemic to our time. Yes. the culture of the selfie. I mean, it's 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 not just as you say. It's not just I share therefore I am. It's I capture. Right. Therefore I am. I tell one story that broke my heart though. Um, in 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 reclaiming conversation of a of a father who's recently divorced and he wants to spend more time with his daughter. He really wants to spend more time with her because, you know, he says it's kind of hard, you know, when you're divorced to, to spend natural time with your child. He says, I end up taking her to the American Girls store, you know. Right. More, more than anybody should go to the American Girls <laughs> store than you. And he, he signs up to be chaperone on a school field trip. And they're on this trip. And for an hour and a half, he's taking pictures of the trip and the bus and all of her schoolmates and the scenery, and he's posting them on the Facebook, and he's so happy because his signal is so good. And finally, his daughter says, you haven't said a word to me. Right. And she's seven years old, and she says, you haven't said a word to me. And he realizes that he, he's on this trip to be with her, but actually it's been all about something else. Right. It's been all about something else. And he, you know, he's so taken aback. And what takes him aback more than anything else is that he didn't realize it. That it's become so natural to him to, to be sharing and on his phone when he's with his child that he, he hadn't even realized it. And in, in one way or the other, I think we're, we're also guilty of this. I think it's also, you know, not realizing it is, is I think, you know, just speaks to the fact that it's become second nature to all of us to sort of be having this 
this way in which we're living, you know, in real life, but not really because we're, you know, at the same time as we're walking and talking and being on the field trip, we're posting and editing and writing captions. And it's just, it's all happening at once, but to the degree that I don't think a lot of us can tell the difference anymore. But I think, you know, I think that we should be, you know, kind of gentle with ourselves too, that all of these technologies come in very quickly and we, we haven't had a chance to get used to it. And what I'm finding in my research is that people are starting to feel that something has gone amiss. 89% of Americans say that they took out a cell phone during their last social interaction, and 82% say that it decreased the quality of their last social interaction. And the research shows that if you put a phone down on, on the table between you and somebody you're having lunch with, two things happen. The... The, the, the conversation moves to trivial things and you feel less emotionally connected to the person you're having lunch with. My guest today is Sherry Turkill. We're talking about reclaiming conversation. We'll be back in a minute to talk about fight tracking apps. But first, deck the halls this year with custom holiday cards from CardsDirect.com. Whether it's for your family or business, CardsDirect.com has you covered with traditional and corporate cards and a variety of unique printing formats. You can add a photo, a logo, or a custom message, and with over 5,000 cards to choose from, you're sure to create the perfect holiday cards. Plus, with express shipping, they'll be here quick, like the holidays. Listeners of The Labor of Love will save an extra 25% off at cardsdirect.com slash realsimple. Don't wait. Christmas is only five weeks away. Visit cardsdirect.com slash realsimple. So I'd like to talk a little bit about how technology has disrupted conversation between romantic partners. And one of the things that I've noticed in my own marriage and how it's things have changed since my husband and I have both become avid texters is that there's this very transactional way that we communicate. We're constantly communicating, but it's almost always about things, details like, can you pick up some milk? Did you feed the kids? You know, they're very businesslike. And I wondered if you've studied or you have any thoughts about how technology has impacted the, the way that we speak with our romantic partners. <laughs> well, we've always had a certain, you know, there's always a lot of business. You know, it's very important not to romanticize the good old days. <laughs> in the good old days, nobody ever had to say, please pick up the milk. Right, of course. You know, I mean, <laughs> we... Somebody always had to say, please pick up the milk. Um, so I think that the issue isn't so much that now our conversation is more filled with, with, with the details of, of the sort of instrumental details of life, but that, we, but that we use an inappropriate technology. In other words, we use texting to try to fit in the, the, the more softer communications as well, mm-hmm. and that it doesn't suit as well. And so because it's, 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 too, it's too crisp and you don't get the uh, full meaning of what somebody is actually saying. I interview a lot of families 
a lot of families, and again, this was something that was completely new to me that I really hadn't anticipated, who like having their arguments on text or on Gchat or on email because they feel, number one, that each member of the family can be heard out completely, that they can have their full thoughts heard out, and uh, that is reassuring to them that there will be no interruption. And then they also say that they like it because there will be an archive if there's ever a, you know, a dispute. They can look back and, you know, it's as though they're presenting a legal case. And those fights are not good. Those fights don't get out really what they're, you know, the people are not understanding the, the full range of what they're feeling. But also I wonder if it limits the, you know, there is something to be said about the catharsis of having a full-blown, you know, drag-out argument sometimes, even if it's someone you love. I wonder if keeping it to texts, keeping it to G-chats, even though you have a record, I wonder how satisfied anyone is at the end of those arguments or if they feel like they've moved forward. I mean, there might be a document, but... You know, psychologically speaking, I wonder if it's really that fulfilling. Well, it's interesting that you ask that because because what people are saying is that is, is that they is that they they're worried about they end up worried and anxious about something that a, a fight leaves you calm about, and it's the following: it's very close to the to, to the issue you raised. When you have a fight with your child and your and your child, you know, blows up at you, one of the functions of that fight is that your child learns that they can be angry at you as a parent, but you're not going to hate them, you're not going to disappear, you're not going to go crazy, you're going to be there, maybe draw a line, and basically say, I love you, I still love you, here's how it has to be, and I'm going to be here tomorrow. And if you communicate to your child that somehow this has to be cleaned up and in writing, you're communicating exactly the wrong thing, that you're not able to take the expression of anger, that you're not able to take you know, the full force of feeling. And I don't think that's what we need to be communicating to right. each other. It's exactly the wrong thing. It's exactly the wrong thing. Now, this doesn't mean that we give each other permission to be abusive to each other. But we have to learn to live with each other as human beings who have feelings. I wonder, too, though, just to... We talked about the transactional nature of, you know, technology and in relationships. But I also wonder, you know... Because this is a book about conversation, what has technology done to so-called pillow talk? You know, I think there's I've seen, you know, numerous cartoons and one of my favorite Valentine's Day cards last year said, there's no one I'd rather sit in bed looking at a screen next to than you. And I think a lot of couples, you know, spend a lot of time in the bedroom, you know, on their phones or on their iPads. What do you think the that has done to our romantic relationships in terms of what we share with each other. There's a, I have a case study, which is a, a little bit of a different take on that, which is of, a, of how we don't allow ourselves to sort of fantasize and be with our romantic partners when we're alone with them because we have 
our phones to go to. And it's a story of a woman who describes how she's in bed with her lover and she goes to the bathroom before they're going to make love. And she takes out her phone and starts texting and starts checking her social media feeds and starts, basically, she's doing her online stuff. And um, she says she just didn't want the boredom of waiting for him. Wow. And it led to a whole conversation about the boring bits of life and what are the boring bits of life. And the boring bits of life used to be the erotic bits of life. Let's just quickly, in the last minute that we have, we talked earlier and you speak about in the book about this idea of sacred spaces, this idea that we have to have device-free zones so that we can reclaim conversation. Can you... If you were going to give one piece of advice to parents and one piece of advice to children and one piece of advice to couples, what would they be in terms of recreating some space for intimacy, for conversation? My piece of advice to everyone is kind of the same, is that Reclaiming Conversation is an optimistic book, and it's called Reclaiming, not because it's nostalgic, but because it's hopeful for the future. It turns out that in only five days at a camp where you couldn't bring phones or laptops, children's empathy levels, which were suppressed when they arrived at camp, begin to go right back up. And the same thing happens to adults. And it's not because anything magic is done to them at camp. It's because they talk to each other. Mm -hmm. That to the disconnections of our digital times, uh, to the profound disconnections about digital time, despite the fact that we're connected all the time. Uh, conversation is the talking cure, that, that we really just need to find ways to get back to, to related passion conversation. Right. And, you know, to that depressing statistic about college students having a 40% decline in empathy, the author of the study said that she wanted to, to design empathy apps for the iPhone. But I say that we are the empathy app. Sherry, thank you so much for being on The Labor of Love today. I can't wait to see what your next book is about because you've been following the way we've been interacting with our technology for so many years, and it's always fascinating to see what you come up with. So I can't wait. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My guest today was Sherry Turkle, author of the new book, Reclaiming Conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Tim Einenkel, and our engineer, Zach Dinerstein. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love.